Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. There's so much more to a business than what's in the, the package or what's in the box. And I think a lot of companies get so focused on their product that, you know, anyone can rip off your product. They can exactly copy your product. They can come down to an exact T. And then if that's all you're standing on, what do you have there? Then it becomes a race to the bottom for the price. When you build a business, you have to think beyond your product. You have to think about how can I really bring value to my customers that is beyond the product because the product alone is not going to do it. There is an evolutionary process for every business, and Beard Brand is no different. When Eric Van Holtz co-founded Beard Brand back in 2012, all he had was a Tumblr blog with a modest amount of followers and an e-commerce shop selling other people's beard products. Today, Beard Brand is a seven-figure business with multiple high-selling products of its own and an entire catalog of content that customers gobble up with each new release. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Eric tells us how he got from point A to point B, and he explains how success in the digital world is all about going beyond offering just a product in a box. It's about delivering value and the best possible experience for your customers. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles. And today we have Eric Bandholtz on the show, founder of Beard Brand. Eric, welcome. What is going on, Stephanie? <laughs> hey, hey, thanks for hopping on here. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, excited for our conversation. This is going to be a lot of fun. Me too. And you are true to brand. You're rocking an awesome beard. Yeah. So just what I expected when I was hoping to see you on video. I'm like, he better have an epic beard. Well, you know, this conversation won't go well. <laughs> well, it's funny because I actually, uh, I shaved it all off in uh, December, the beginning of December of last year. That was kind of a, a big deal for us. That was the first time I, I shaved my beard completely off. And she's like, eight oh, years man. or something like that. How many customers did you lose when you did that? <laughs> well, I'd like to think that we, um, we actually added a lot of customers because um, beard brand is, is so much... Uh, it's not about the beard. It's about the man behind the beard. And we kind of support a guy's right to grow his beard as much as his right to shave it off. And I really wanted to make that point, you know, especially today with a lot of our competitors challenging people's masculinity by not having facial hair. Mm-hmm. wanted to kind of say, look, facial hair doesn't matter at all, you know, like it's, yeah. it's just a style. So, um, yeah, we did some YouTube ads on it as well, which was, was a lot of fun to do. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love to dive into the background of how you started Beard Brand and the story behind that. Yeah, so um, we're uh, we're in business. I think it's got to be like eight years now. We we launched in wow, congrats! Yeah, yeah, we launched in 2012 after um, I had grown a beard out for about a year. And and what happened is I would at the time I was trying to do this uh, graphic design business or design business and web design business, and I would go to networking events and everyone would call me Duck Dynasty or ZZ Top or Grizzly Adams and <laughs> Those are like super cool dudes. Like they've, they've got epic stories as well. But as an individual, like I don't identify as those kind of guys. Like, you know, I've got mm-hmm. like the softest hands you could ever imagine. <laughs> Never touched an axe. So um, I ended up attending this event where I met other dudes like me who are like, you know, other entrepreneurs and designers and doctors and lawyers and dads. And I realized there's this whole community of, of guys that didn't fit the traditional stereotype of a bearded guy. And uh, that was the inspiration to, to kind of call myself a, an urban beardsman. And Beard like Brand it. was going to be the community to unite urban beardsmen and give them the tools they needed to, to feel confident about rocking a beard. And, and to us, the tools don't mean just the grooming products. They mean 
you know, videos, they mean blog posts, they mean style inspiration, they mean community. So uh, over the past eight years, we've, we've been rolling all that out. We've got an, an epic blog and a YouTube channel with over a million and a half subscribers. We've got a private community where we can connect with people. We put on conferences uh, for our uh, customers to be able to connect in person. And um, we've really worked hard to support our audience, to support our customers. I've done this. Uh, I've got two business partners and, and we're completely bootstrapped. We have no debt. We have no outside funding. Uh, and we've been able to grow to a, a, a nice size seven-figure business. That's amazing. Yeah. Congrats on all those YouTube followers. How do you think about um, utilizing your content to sell your products? Or was that an idea and a strategy from the beginning? Or was it more organic where you started on YouTube and then you're like, well, now we have all these followers. We should launch a product as well. Yeah. I mean, if, if we'll hop in our time machine a little bit more. So we launched 2012 as a blog. A Tumblr page, which I don't think anyone's uttered the word Tumblr in, in a good, yeah. you know, five years. It's <laughs> long like, time. Yeah, but we we had a Tumblr page, and then we also had um, our YouTube channel. At the at the this time, it was just me as kind of like a side project, and I would make a couple of posts on the blog, and then I would just reblog some things on Tumblr to to make it look active. And I think I did like six videos on YouTube. So it, it's not like in that first year we really built like this thriving. Community. I think we had like 300 subscribers on YouTube and, uh, you know, just a, a couple thousand visitors to our blog. But it was enough mm-hmm. that a reporter from the New York Times saw the blog and kind of quoted me as an expert. And uh, we, we utilized that opportunity. Uh, I convinced two of my friends to, to go into business with me and said, hey, why don't we turn this, you know, blog into to an e-commerce store? So we, we found a product. We started reselling it. You know, we... I had the vision that beard brand, you know, the, the urban beardsman is going to be like how Lululemon is to, to people for yoga or, or van shoes is to, to skaters like, um, beard brand and the urban beardsman was like, we're going to serve these urban beardsmen. And I always visual, visualize that as like apparel or accessories or clothes, but I really didn't have the, the industry knowledge to be able to do that. And the margins are so tight on there and so much seasonality that. Uh, we found grooming products was going to be that product that united the community. And uh, after like, I guess a year or two of failure after failure after failure of trying to get apparel up and the accessories up, I just, we, we finally admitted that we're a grooming company. So mm-hmm. for us, like the content that we've created was, was more of like not to drive sales. It's like the, the products we have allow us to, to share our word more. So like we sell products as a way to kind of expand our voice and to grow our content, not as a way to create content to sell products. So I think we're one of the companies that kind of view it a little bit differently. Got it. How do you utilize newsletters and like reaching your subscribers once you have them or, you know, engaging with buyers or prospective buyers? Because I think I've read about some newsletter strategy that you have from day one, everyone kind of starts out in the same place to go along the journey with you. Is that still accurate? Yeah, we, we utilize Clavio to... Um, I think they call it flows, um, where you, you have these series of emails that you send out when people join your email list. So we've, we've, we launched that, I think, in 2015, and that's been really good. Uh, when you think about building a business, as much as you can automate and build systems and processes, the more you're going to be able to scale your business and, and the more traction you're going to be able to gain. So this series that we open up with is really like an education series. I think it's like a, a five or 10-part series where we teach them how to care for their beard, teach them how to care for their hair. You know, a lot of guys still don't know like how to shampoo and condition your hair. So yeah. it's basics like that where, you know, I want to say they've been doing it wrong, but there's opportunity for, for them to improve their techniques and ultimately um, get better outcome uh, through, through their journey. So that's been big for us. And then at the end of the flow, we, we give them a little uh, thank you product for, for kind of uh, or free shipping or something like that for, for taking the time to invest in themselves. Got it. Are there any best practices you would recommend to other e-commerce sites when it comes to um, utilizing that newsletter or where you're like, well, conversions were high when we did this or they were lower when we did this or that thank you product really does help drive future sales. Um, yeah. Any insights around that? Yeah. A couple of, a couple of things that we've found that work over the years. We have a product that is not available on our navigation. It's kind of like a hidden kit that is only that um, only available to, to people who join our newsletter. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So 
the, the retail value of that kit's like $50 and we give them a, a pretty aggressive uh, price point to, to be able to get on board. And it's kind of like a tester kit, so a sample kit. So they get exposure to a lot of our products. And we found that that works really well because we can say, hey, get this tester kit, try all of our products, use these products as you're learning about the things that we're telling you. And then, um, you know, in two weeks or a month or whenever the, the products, uh, when you go through the products and, you know, look to, to re-up them. And we found that that works really well at, at getting people into the ecosystem and, and trying our products. And I mean, for us, it's so much about content. You know, I think a, a lot of people really air towards like sales and discounts and buy from us and chest thumping. And that's really not our style. And I would challenge people out there to like, think about how you can bring value to your audience's lives. And then if you bring enough value to their lives, then, you know, kind of like the whole Buddhism karma thing, like it will come back to you. Like people will end up buying from you. So we kind of have that outlook on the world that uh, if you do good things, good things will come back to you. Love that. How do you think about your buyer experience and making that personalized and unique to all your customers as they come in? Yeah, we've invested a fair amount into uh, our packaging to our products. So the unboxing experience is, is nice. Like we use nicer primary packaging, which is going to be your, your bottles and your labels and your caps and all that. And then we use nicer uh, secondary packaging as well. So uh, when they actually get the boxes and they open it, it's pretty nice. But in addition to that, we're we're working with our own 3PL or a third-party logistics, our own fulfillment center. And we make sure to work really closely with them that they wrap it uh, kind of to our specifications. So there's a nice little unboxing experience, a little bit of tissue paper and a beer brand sticker. And then we have a, what's called a thank you kit. And within this thank you kit, we have a, a little booklet. And the booklet usually changes every quarter. Uh, for instance, one quarter, it was my book of reminders, which are kind of like my my nine reminders that I tell myself in life to, to kind of, as I face adversity, but uh, we'll do th- oh, that's great. A daily planning. And so it's all tied around our, our core message or our tagline, which is keep on growing. So we're trying to, again, bring more value. So you buy from us and not only did you get great products, but we brought you a little more value outside of what the products can do. And, and hopefully by delivering this experience, we can grow through word of mouth and loyalty and, and customers who want to stick around rather than uh, kind of going on to the next hot thing. Yeah, I was just gonna say I could see that adding to that viral experience by giving people those little presents that are really fun to share and then engaging with more customers because of that. So that's yeah, really interesting to hear about. I'll, I'll tell you this, if you're trying to build a bootstrap company, um, the reality is you've got more time than money. Um, so yeah. when, you're, when you're cash strapped, you've got to think of creative ways to be able to grow the business without capital. And one way to do that is word of mouth. And you can't incentivize word of mouth. You have to really just truly focus on such an amazing experience that your customers want to talk about it. And when you have that mentality, not only is it like healthy for your business, but it's going to be healthy for your growth. It's just kind of a win-win and the world's a better place because you're, you're bringing that much value to the customers. Yeah, I completely agree. Are there any success stories or big failures that you've had come from trying to generate that word of mouth and getting people to spread the word? Any advice around that? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually not a metric that we really track or uh, keep an eye on. And it, it's just more of like a, a philosophy internally of, of just being customer first. To a certain degree, you do have to integrate data. Like we, we used to include a little sample of products for people. Uh, and we found that those samples weren't driving any additional sales of those products in a significant mm. way. So uh, when you look at that, you're like, well, are you actually bringing value to customers if you're giving them something for free that that maybe they didn't want or they didn't they didn't need? How did you track that, or how did you know that people weren't really using it or that wasn't helping drive sales? Yeah, so uh, we would send uh, like a a beard wash and uh, like a little sample, like a one ounce container, and and then we would look at if there's any increase in sales of of beard wash, and you know your mm-hmm. data is always going to be muddy especially when yeah. you're a company that's our size and, and really small, we, we fundamentally can't get the data. So you, you do have to go off of a certain gut, but you have to, to also look at like, well, every sample is costing us, you know, let's say it's a dollar. So every order is going out, let's just use flat numbers, it's $5,000 a month. And then if we're not seeing a boost of, you know, like $10,000 in sales to justify the, the cost of that and then the margin in the future order, then, 
you know, you're not building a sustainable practice. And um, again, as a bootstrap company, you do have to think about your, your marketing efforts being sustainable and being able to exist on their own for, for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. How do you think about creating those marketing campaigns, whether it's the YouTube videos? I mean, how much do you guys put out per day or per week? And to me, that feels like it could be not sustainable if you don't have, you know, the right team in place, uh, the right video crew, especially right now. I'm thinking with everything with COVID-19. I mean, has it been hard to keep that content going out and recording the videos and launching them on YouTube and everything? Or is it still pretty good because it's a remote team doing that? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's It's been a, <laughs> a really long, hard journey. And, and, you know, to the listeners out there who are hearing our story now, eight years in, is like, we've had eight years to, to build these processes and systems and relationships. Like you're not going to be able to do all the things that we've done on day one. We're still cranking out about six videos a week. And we've been able to do that by leveraging multiple personalities, just like you guys have multiple shows. uh, We're kind of Mm -hmm. the same thing. So it's not all on my shoulders and, you know, worrying about me getting burnt out. Uh, We have like four different regulars uh, on our smaller channel called the Beard Brand Alliance. And then we have really like four to to 10 uh, barbers who will hit on to do these kind of barbershop styled videos. So We've been able to really like spread the burden of the YouTube channel. And then we have an in-house video editor who is constantly video editing. He's a machine. And then we have, uh, uh, we, in addition to creating these YouTube uh, videos, we do a fair amount of advertising in the video form as well. So uh, our video, uh, we do have video editing handled by uh, our ad person as well, our advertising coordinator. So she'll be uh, cranking out content that way as well. So video is great, man. Like I would, I would highly suggest anyone listening that if you invest in video, you could have a pretty good uh, competitive advantage in the marketplace. Yeah, I completely agree. Video is where it's at. How do you make sure that your videos and your content is found? Because a lot of people can create some really awesome stuff and then be like, okay, now what? (laughs) I've only had one view on it, or I don't know how to get people, you know, to view this video and then take the action that I want afterwards, which is probably, you know, buying one of the products that I'm highlighting. Yeah. So um, there, there's two answers to that. Uh, one answer is you pay for it, uh, which mm-hmm. could be uh, really expensive. But if, if the content is truly remarkable, for instance, uh, I shaved my beard off, we filmed it, we created a 45 second ad on YouTube. And to, to get exposure on YouTube through their advertising system, if the video is engaging, it's extremely cheap. So I think we're paying like a third of a penny per view. So for like a million impressions was, what is that? Like a thousand? Something great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's like astronomically inexpensive. But at the same time, you, you may not be targeting the right people. Now, organically, uh, I, I think YouTube is going to be the platform to go because um, uh, how they recommend videos and it's a little more evergreen uh, than Facebook. There's certainly opportunity on Facebook and Instagram, but I'm not as strong on how to... Uh, perform there. But, you know, it comes down to in the early days, the reality is no one's going to watch your content. And you may yep. think that sucks, but the reality is it's awesome because maybe you'll have one person or two people or 10 people watch it. And then you'll get a couple of comments. Well, you'll use those comments to get your content better and better and better. And then by the time you've built a larger audience, you've kind of figured a lot of these things out. So you're not really like damaging uh, your audience pipe. You th- you think what you create is great, but the reality is it's not. Like great content agree. <laughs> will be be shared, but by creating and by doing, you get the hang of it. You get more natural in front of the camera, or you get more natural of the editing process and telling the story. And as you learn, you've just kind of it compounds on itself. So if you're thinking about getting into organic u- video on YouTube, then plan on having like you know really like twenty or fifty videos that you want to produce before you really even see any kind of traction. I mean, it took us like, I think it took us like three years before we got 10,000 subscribers, you know, then again, it compounds and you learn and you create more content, you create more content faster. That's more in line with what people want. And then, you know, all of a sudden we were able to grow to, you know, daily content and getting 10,000 subscribers a month. So uh, it takes time and it takes learning. And there's a lot of insights in YouTube that you'll need to learn as well. Yeah. I think it's really good as a reminder to kind of detach yourself from the content, because when you put something out there, it's like, it's my baby. And, you know, that was my best one yet. I remember when we were starting our company, the first couple episodes we did on Mission Daily, Chad and myself, 
I mean, it didn't get any downloads. It was a brand new podcast. No one had heard about it. We didn't know how to grow the podcast at that point. And I remember thinking that was my best episode yet. I'll never be able to do something that good again. And now I look back on it. I'm like, I'm very glad no one was listening to those episodes (laughs) because they were not good and the audio wasn't great. And yeah, it's just a really good reminder to put stuff out there more in the learning phase. And then eventually you can move into the, you know, really trying to find those subscribers and followers once you get to the point where you're more, a bit more experienced and you've tried a bunch of things out. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so much of it is just the process, you know, like making sure that you can, I mean, for for a podcast, making sure you can line up those guests and you can post regularly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's hard work. And it's, it's easy to get the first one done or maybe the first couple and queue it up, but to also record and organize and plan is a very big challenge. So um, those are the things that you'll be solving when your audience is small. And then mm-hmm. as you solve those, that allows you to grow your audience. Yeah, agree. When it comes to um, solving problems when you're small, when you got the visibility from, I think you said New York Times, and I think I read Shark Tank, when you got that visibility, were you ready? Was your, you know, your website ready, your product ready, like your fulfillment strategy ready? Or how did that go when you got those bumps in visitors? Yeah. Um, New York Times drove about like $900 of sales. So okay. <laughs> it was, we're, we're certainly, <laughs> that's huge. Just kidding. Well, well it actually is when I, I think uh, we had like $100 worth of product. So oh, yeah. it was like nine times uh, our inventory. But, <laughs> but fortunately, we were able to, to, to solve all that. You have a lot of growing pains, I think. This is my first successful business. So I had no relationships and we didn't know where to get like our, our wooden boxes made. And we, mm-hmm. we always dealt with like supply chain issues. What was the Shark Tank experience like? I haven't talked to anyone who's been on there yet. Oh, no, I'm your first breaking your shark. Yep, you're my first. (laughs) (laughs) It was, uh, I mean, so this was 2014 and um, Halloween of 2014 is when the episode aired. So a lot of things may have changed since that time, but I know Shark Tank was really like popular at the time. So a lot of people were watching it and it's a very stressful process because during the whole campaign, only, not only, but 80% of the people who go through the whole process are going to end up on the show. So you could end up investing a lot of energy, a lot of time. You could pay a lot of money to build out like this fancy display case. You could you know, fly out there, step away from your, the operational needs of your business in a, in a time where your business really needs this stuff, and then do all that and not make it to air. So we always knew there's a good chance that we didn't make it to air. So subsequently, we we didn't put too many resources into Shark Tank. Um, you know, we kept uh, our display stand. I think we paid like $300 to rent some furniture. And then we put out some products there. And, you know, it was just me going on show. It wasn't my business partners. So they could kind of focus on, you know, focusing on building the business. And I just kind of focused on the Shark Tank pitch and stuff like that. And, uh, and then you get out there and it's uh, stressful because... Um, not just because of pitching to the sharks, which is how they make the show scene, but also knowing that whatever you do is recorded in front of 7 million people. So yeah. if you make a mistake, like 7 million people are going to know about that. Yeah. And it's replayed over and over yeah, yeah, again yeah. on reruns. <laughs> uh, fortunately for us, I, I feel like uh, Shark Tank, they, they did a pretty accurate representation of, of how I felt like the, the conversation was because they're cutting down 45 minutes to, to seven minutes. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they're trying to craft a story in seven minutes. And then, yeah. And then um, the hard part is all five of those sharks, they talk to you all at once. And you don't know that on the show coming in, but they all ask you a question right at the same time. So when you see like the the people pitching and they're looking all over the place, it's just because five people are talking at once and they're just trying to figure out who to talk to. Wow. Sounds very intimidating. I do love Shark Tank though. So I'll have to try and find your episode and see if I can watch it. Yeah, yeah, do it. It was a, it was a fun experience. So it was, you know, that like how your heart can race going through a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was really like that the whole time. It was just like the adrenaline's pumping and, you know, you're, I'm not very good with the words. I'm kind of dyslexic. So I'm just like hoping I'm not saying anything too stupid, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think it was a, a great experience all over. And I think what they're doing for entrepreneurs is, is great too. Yeah, completely agree. When you, um, in the early days, were you completely selling on your website or how much of it was selling direct to consumer versus wholesale versus maybe utilizing Amazon? What did your sales strategy look like with Beard Brand? Yeah, so we've done a little bit of everything. We started off direct to consumer. We actually started off, as I said, as a 
simply an e-commerce retailer selling other people's products in the early days until we were able to develop our own products. As we were able to get traction, we had passively companies would want to like barbershops and salons and pharmacists would want to sell our products. So we would, we would kind of sell to these smaller retailers. And then, um, but it was never like a, a core focus of us to, to bring on wholesale retailers. And then um, we would get on Amazon and this was like the early days of Amazon. And, you know, in hindsight's 2020, we probably missed a fair amount of opportunity on there, but we really always focused on selling on beardbrand.com and Amazon was never more than like 10% of our sales. So after a couple of years, we ended up pulling off of Amazon uh, completely. So you can't get our products on Amazon now. And that's been a great decision for us. And then we also brought in um, Target as one of our wholesalers. Today, we're about half uh, half through retail and half direct, not on Amazon, not on any other markets. Very cool. And how do you think about separating yourself from competitors? Because not that I watch the beard space often, I don't have a beard that I know of, but I have seen a lot of beard oils coming on the market and just things focused around that. So how do you separate yourself from the competitors, especially since you're on you know, an e-commerce site and you don't have a bunch of retail locations or not in like a ton of places? How do you show that value and how it's different from other products? Yeah, I mean, uh, the reality is you're always going to have a competition. And if you have no competitors, then your competition is ignorance. So we, we've kind of always embraced competitors and knowing that we're going to have competition in the sense that it's going to force us to elevate our game and provide such an amazing experience to our customers that they'll have no option other than to go with us because we are the best. With that mentality, we've we've also come to terms with certain things like we're not going to be the low price product on the marketplace. So if that's the game you want, then we're not going to be a good fit for you. And we try to be really clear about the value that we bring and the things that maybe we're not great at. So there's always going to be trades off. And to us, I think we do a great job because we we bring all that value to our customers. Like we talked about earlier in the show, the content marketing, the education, the blog articles, the email flows, the YouTube videos, the customer service experience, the unboxing experience. I think all of those things are, are what makes Beard Brand a different company and why someone would want to buy from us. But if they're just some, some dude who doesn't really care and they just want whatever's cheap, then Beard Brand probably isn't going to be the best product for them. Yeah, I, I like the idea of being upfront with, you know, here's what we sell. And if you don't want quality, then, you know, maybe go somewhere else to find something different. Do you market differently based on that? I mean, to be fair, there's other quality products out there as well. But I don't think there's quality products out there that also do the education, that also do the packaging, that also do, you know, the customer experience. Like there's so much more to a business than what's in the the package or what's in the box. And I think a lot of companies get so focused on their product that, you know, anyone can rip off your product. They can exactly copy your product. They can, you know, come down to an exact T. And then if that's all you're standing on, what do you have there? Then it becomes a race to the bottom for the price. So when you build a business, you have to think beyond your product. You have to think about how can I really bring value to my customers that is beyond the product because the product alone is not going to do it. Got it. Yeah, I love that. How do you think about building better business models for other e-commerce companies? I was looking at, I think on Twitter, you had an experience with West Elm and I guess they had marked down a table and you kind of went through how e-commerce companies need to figure out how to develop better business models. What is your advice around that? Or maybe you can highlight that experience a bit because I didn't read the whole thread. Yeah. So uh, a little background story. I, I, I bought the table. Uh, the table I'm actually using for my, my podcast studio. 25 days later, they, they put on a sale where I could get the exact same table, but it cost me 75 days or excuse me, $75 less. And as a consumer, that's kind of frustrating because you kind of feel like an idiot for not waiting mm-hmm. out. Like I would have waited 25 days to save 75 bucks. Personally, I don't think that's a good experience. And I recognize like they're, they're doing sales, they're doing weekly sales and some sales are better than others. And, but to me, I feel like, Hey, like have some kind of policy in place where, you know, within a certain time frame, whatever you feel is appropriate, two weeks, a month, two months, whatever, that you can guarantee the, the, the offer that you're giving to them. And it doesn't even have to be like a money back guarantee. It could be a store credit guarantee. Then I think that's going to encourage a lot more confidence in the consumers and also consumers will be more likely to buy from them again, because if you have the alternative, 
where you're just like, I know you're screwed. You missed out on this one. You already bought it. Then it's like, well, next time I'm just really going to wait. I'm just going to wait Mm -hmm. until I know there's an incredible deal. And, or I'm just not going to buy it all because I don't want to make, feel like I'm going to be made a fool again. So you, you run the risk. If you're running sales all the time and they're not the exact same sale, people will, not everyone will feel this, but some people will sub, subconsciously be feeling this. There's quick and easy ways to, to really just guarantee the experience. But so I, I don't yeah. want to tell people how to run their business or policy, their policy. <laughs> I think it was, you know, I, I'm not mad at them. I was just kind of calling them out that I think they could do better. In. And then to be fair, West Elm reached out to me on Twitter and they offered me store credit. So they did. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> but you don't want to have to like really fight and argue for that. You just want them to, to make it right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point though. And also that big brands are looking to smaller companies and the individual consumer to kind of learn from. So yeah, that's a really good point of making the consumer feel good after a purchase and not having buyer's remorse because I've definitely had that experience before of buying something and then seeing a discount afterwards and then waiting the next time and then there's no more inventory and then I just never go back again. So those little moments definitely matter. Well, and then you think about like the whole West Elm experience for me is like, I, I couldn't do a live chat or email them about it. I had to call them. So then I called them and I was on hold for 25 minutes. And then on, after 25 minutes, they pretty much told me I could ship the thing back and then buy a new one. Uh, but shipping would not be reimbursed. So it's like yep. financially, it wasn't going to make sense. And it's like, okay, you know, like this is how you're going to do it. It's like as a small company, you think that these large companies have all the advantages because they can you know, buy in bulk and get better prices. Well, a lot of people don't buy based on products, you know, like they buy because they want to be able to reach out to you and, and talk with a real person, not be on hold for 25 minutes. You know, like those are the things that I want you to think about as you build your business, how you can compete with Amazon and how you can compete with West Elm and, you know, Walmart and these giant companies out there. Yeah, I love that. What's one thing that you wish online sellers would start and stop doing? And I'm asking you this question because I see you're big in the e-commerce community, I'm always talking and highlighting different e-commerce stores. So you've probably seen a lot of best practices that sellers do and some things where you're like, you should just stop. That's not good. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, going back, I, I don't want to tell anyone how to run their business. There's, there's a lot of ways to build a business. And, you know, it, it kind of comes down to who your audience is and what they're okay with. You know, a couple of things that we've always avoided is like, we don't want to do pop-ups. So there's no pop-ups. There's no like, tricks. There's no like immediate discounts. Like, you know, like one of the things that is a pet peeve of mine is like, um, here's a pop-up. Do you want to save 10% on your next order? You know, and then they click X and they're like, or, you know, close out of this if you don't want to save money, you know, something kind of condescending like that. And it's like, "Eh." Mm -hmm. or the little spin wheel, you know, like I think a lot of things become a little hokey. But they'll always claim, you know, the people selling those software as a service things will always claim that they work. We've actually cut a significant amount of our third third party plugins just because it made our website so bloated. Yeah, I was reading about that. How how uh, quick were you able to get your website down to? I think I saw four seconds. Or oh my god, we we just uh, so we're doing page speed test uh, on our old website, and it would be. Like the homepage on the desktop, I think it would have been in like the, the 40 range score. And then I think the, um, the mobile side would have been in like the 20 to 25 range is the score mm. we had. And then we, we essentially rolled out a new website template, new website theme, killed all the mm-hmm. third-party plugins. And the new speed is now like around 77 for the desktop and around like 40, mm-hmm. 45 for the mobile. So I don't, I don't know what that is in actual load times, but in terms of data, according to Google, it's a significant increase. Uh, some of our blog posts would take like 10 seconds to load and we really just went and found the stuff. And, and it wasn't just the theme too. We had some, some images that we uploaded, which were like, you know, two megabytes in size, something ridiculous like that. So it was just kind of like eight years into to having a business and a lot of people putting their hands into the business, it gets a little, you lose sight of things. So it's always good to circle back every once in a while. Yeah, I think doing that audit's really important because like you said, after many years, people all are implementing their own things without thinking about, you know, the long-term strategy of it and how it might impact things. And I think like web chat is one thing where a lot of websites have the digital chat, but that increases the website's uh, load time by a ton. And maybe people don't even fully utilize it. They would rather call or send an email or, um, so it's good to just do that audit 
I'd say at least yearly. Yeah, so we we had um, one of those live chats, and it was um, I think it presented some issues because sometimes a little pop up would block information uh, or mm-hmm. it would block like the the add to cart button. Uh, oh man, <laughs> they're like I'm just trying to buy, and you're not letting me. Exactly, and, and it's just like as templates get uploaded or themes get updated, you know, things get reverted, and and then like so we killed it. And we no longer have that that JavaScript burden of loading it. And those those chat bots are fundamentally like the things that slow down your your page load speed the most I've seen. And um, we haven't seen any drop in uh, conversion rates or sales. And then in addition to that, the alternative what we did is we just moved to a, a phone number that people can text. So I think what what we're getting is people who are more serious about needing advice rather than just kind of like casual looky lose who see a little pop up and they're like, Oh yeah. Da, 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 da. I like that. Looky lose. <laughs> That's what my mom calls them. So. <laughs> That's good. What metrics are you paying attention to most? I mean, you've mentioned conversion rates. Now we've talked about website speed. Are there a certain set of metrics that you pay the most attention to? I think we, we tend to, well, I'm like your typical ADD entrepreneur. So like being in, and the details on a daily basis is really hard for me. So everything I do is kind of on an ad hoc basis. When it comes to YouTube, the things that we really look look at are our watch time and our click-through rates. Those are going to be the big indications if a video is going to be successful or not. And then on our website, you know, it's really, I'm a top-level kind of guy. So I'm looking at revenue. I'm looking at orders. I'm looking at... Um, um, and then on an ad hoc level, I'll look at how our blog is converting and then how our traffic outside of our blog, like to our stores converting. And then like our page speed has been something that's uh, been a pretty big uh, metric for me lately. And then there's so many other more metrics that I should be looking into that I'm fortunate that we have team members who are looking for like email performance and you know how those are doing. Yeah. Is there any themes around either video content that you put out or blog content that you've seen, you know, certain types of videos, maybe they're funny ones convert better or um, more how to blog content converts better. Any best practices around releasing content in a strategic way that will actually, you know, create a future buyer? Yeah. So our, our strategy is to leverage YouTube's organic growth. And to do that, you need to have the viewers want to watch more of your content and stay on YouTube. So the strategy isn't really so much of like, hey, buy this or be aware of this. It's more of like get awareness of the brand. So we try to integrate a lot of like branding on our videos. Like we put our taglines on every video to keep on growing, you know, change the way society views beardsmen, all those call outs in the lower thirds. And then we try to integrate, you know, product placements in our videos as well. So it's just bringing awareness to it and not driving people off of YouTube. So subsequently, when you do that, you're less concerned with any kind of direct sales that you're getting from videos. But what we've done is um, one great plugin tool that we've used is called Grapevine. And Grapevine allows you to have a simple one-question survey uh, that you put at the end of um, after they've purchased. And we use that to say, hey, how did you first hear about us? And um, we have about like 20 different options from like Shark Tank to our YouTube channel to various YouTube personalities. And we found that 40% of our customers have first found out about us from YouTube. So wow. being able to attribute that to any particular video, we can kind of segment it a little bit. Like 18% of it is from our barbershop videos, which is a fair amount. Beyond that, like you, you just kind of have to trust the process. Got it. Do you find influencers in the space when you're talking about having these barbers do these videos do you find someone who already has a following or do you kind of create that following organically through under your brand where maybe it's someone that no one would have ever known about, but you just know that they're a great personality personality to do the video? Yeah, a little of both, I would say. Like um, one of our longest tenured relationships, well, we've got a couple of, of long tenured relationships with influencers. Uh, Carlos Costa, he, uh, we reached out to him back in 2013. And he's been with us kind of since then as an influencer for the brand. And then he's grown to make videos for us. And, and then he reached out to Greg Brzezinski, who at the time, I think he had like, you know, maybe 20 or 30,000 followers on Instagram. And he was a big mm-hmm. believer in the brand. We try to find people who really love Beard Brand, who love the products, who love what we're doing. And it's just easier for them to be excited about it. 
And we also try to, to work with like smaller influencers, those who are maybe still getting established and, or who have a following because they're not influencers. Like uh, Tobias Van Schneider is another one who's, he's another business owner and he's got other businesses and like he's not making money from promoting products. So he's more likely to talk about our products and not ask for compensation, uh, which is something that you need as a, a bootstrap company to be able to make your dollars uh, go far. So it's been a little bit of that. And then we have had like employees at Beard Brand. We're like, hey man, get on camera, talk about this. You've got a great beard. And uh, they've done that. So we've done a little of both and, and have had uh, success and, and challenges in, in both processes as well. Yeah, that, that's very cool to experiment with all those different types of models. I, uh, I like the idea of having the employees be the influencer. I know that a lot of companies in Asia are doing this, but I haven't seen a lot of companies in the U.S. fully utilizing that model of creating micro-influencers within the company and them developing their own followings. And that's just a nice organic way to do it. And having someone who is, you know, an actual expert on the product without, you know, being too salesy because they're not a salesperson. Yeah, we try to. Like, if, if you look at our Instagram account where people are... Uh, the the beard brand account is replying to comments. You'll always see like like Sylvester, he's replying to him, so he'll sign his name. Or whoever's replying to a comment on YouTube, they'll sign their name. And we're totally in favor of like get to know our people, like get to know our copywriter Mike, and get to know mm-hmm. our you know our growth marketer um, James. Because that, again, we talk about how you compete with Amazon. Amazon doesn't have a James. They don't have a Mike. They don't have a Lindsay. They don't have a Jordan. They don't have yep. a Chandler. You know, but we have those people. So the more we can help them uh, get to know the team. And then if you, the risk is like, if you just worked with one person uh, within your company and that person could hold you hostage or quit or leave or, you know, get in a DUI or do something. Yeah. Um, but if you have, you know, 10 or 20 different people on the regular who you integrate into your content, then in the natural course of business, as people move on and things change, then you'll still be able to, to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. In a world where everything is becoming automated and you always know you're talking to bots, I think it's actually nice how certain business models are kind of flipping that. Like you're mentioning about developing a relationship with the person at the company where you are used to seeing the same name and you kind of are developing an internet relationship with someone at the company that you trust and grow to love. And yeah, I like how that model's kind of reversing a bit over the past year. And, and Sylvester, who I mentioned, like that's his full-time job is he, he runs a community. Like his responsibility is to, to build those relationships. Like he's heading up our private forums. Um, he's putting on these events. He's interacting with people on you know, Twitter and Instagram. So as they, they chat on Twitter and as they chat on YouTube and, and they see the same name over and over again, they start to, to learn about him. And then we have in our emails, we'll have a photograph of him and we'll talk about him. We'll talk about his style and you know, people will start to trust his input because you know, obviously me as the founder, um, and a, a lot of videos or a lot of views to those videos. A lot of people want to come and talk to me, but I can't interact with, you know, 40 people a day and still run the company and have sanity really. So being yeah. able to, to, to scale up what I bring and, and not only that, like Sylvester's got way more incredible style than me and he's a lot more empathetic than me. He's able to really like provide these people great advice in a way that I couldn't. It's just, I mean, it brings a lot of joy to me to be able to offer that to our audience and, and also that, that Sylvester is able to, to do what he loves. Yeah, that's really fun. So to zoom out a bit, go a little bit higher level, what kind of digital commerce trends are you most excited about that are coming down the pike right now? You know, I, I think uh, the thing I, I don't follow too much is, is the trends. I feel like we just kind of fall into them. So like SMS is something that a lot of people are talking about. And mm-hmm. something that we've actually been doing for a good half a year now. And we do it in a way that I, I think most people aren't doing it. Most people see SMSs as another channel to like market and throw sales and discounts. And, and that drives consumers crazy. Like if I see someone marketing to me on SMS, I'm just like, yeah. you're dead to me. Um, but yeah. how we're using it as like style consulting. So like you text us, send us a photo. Like, and oh, that's good. is perfect for that because you got your phone there. Take a selfie, send it to us. We can tell you where you're trimming your beard, how your neckline's coming in, you know, what your hairline looks like and what kind of hairstyle will work for you. And um, I think that's an excellent way to use SMS. So we've, it's funny, like once we started using SMS that way, the company we work with, Emotive, 
they actually changed their whole marketing position to be more about style consultants and beauty consultants and things like that. So I want, I want to take full credit for that, but I would like to say we had a little bit of influence in the way that they're selling SMS. And I think that's better for the consumer as well to be able to connect with them on a one-to-one kind of like consultant basis. Yep. How do you make sure they stick with your brand? Because I can see them, you know, maybe not having the expertise like you're talking about of like how you're trimming your beard wrong or like what kind of product you need because of whatever they see in the photo. How do you make sure that they stick with your brand guidelines and make sure they're speaking in the way that you want and they're recommending things correctly and not giving bad advice? Yeah. So, I mean, um, for <laughs> this goes back to our core values, which are freedom, hunger, and trust. So, you know, part of the hiring process is making sure that we hire people who align with these core values. And then um, it's not blind faith with trust, but, you know, through experience and interactions. And like, I know Sylvester, I know his style. I see him show up every day in the office and what he's wearing and how he's, you know, behaving and how he communicates. And it's like, dude, man, like, go at it, be yourself. Like, uh, so our, our brand standard is communicate to our customers in a way that you communicate to your friends. So mm-hmm. no, no corporate speak, nothing like if you're a goofy guy, talk goofy. If you're a serious guy, talk serious, like be yourself. And, um, so you are going to have different experiences. Interacting with Sylvester is going to be different than interacting with Meg. Like they're two different people and that's totally okay. That's great. Are there any other channels that you're utilizing or looking to utilize over the next couple of years? Um, for us, like our goal has been, again, going back to me being an ADD entrepreneur, you try a little bit of everything. The past two years has been, you know, fixing all of my ADD new channels that we, we've been in. So we killed Amazon, we killed selling into Europe. We, we've cut like marketing channels. And it's really like, how do we get better at the channels we're in? So how do we get better at Facebook marketing? How do we get better at Instagram marketing? How do we get better at YouTube content? We do have, uh, like I said, we have a newer, smaller YouTube channel that we're trying to grow and build that awareness. But in terms of like just completely introducing anything that we've never done before, like TV advertising or radio advertising or podcast advertising, we're going to be staying away from that until we feel like we've completely capitalized on the opportunities of the channels we're currently in. That makes sense. Yeah, I think killing projects and platforms is a good first step to making sure that you can focus on what's actually working to then move into a new channel or realm to try out. So sounds like a good strategy to me. Yeah. I'll tell you, it sucks though when you kill something and and then you don't get better at the thing you're supposed to get better at. <laughs> yeah. That's a big bummer, but so we've done that. hoping that has that happened a few times. Yeah. When we, when we pulled out of Europe, that was about a, Europe was about 20% of our, our business. We did this uh, March 31st of last year. Uh, it was about 20% of our business. And the intent was like with the new focus of not having to deal with multiple fulfillment centers and, you know, different time zones and multiple stores and things like that, that we could get really good at, at serving our customers. Subsequently, like 2019 was a terrible year for us. And we weren't able to capture that, the lost sales that I thought we would be able mm-hmm. to by having more focus. And we've had to, you know, really analyze it wasn't so much like selling into Europe. That was the thing. I think it was more of the internal structure of our team and kind of red tape that got put in place after seven years of business and systems and processes that kind of built up on itself. And we, we should have taken an ax to all of that rather than maybe potentially taking an ax to the, the UK channel. Got it. Is there any um, like big initiatives that you undertook that you were like this you know, like you're talking about internal processes and structures. Is there any one thing that led to kind of writing the business um, back to where you wanted to go after the whole shutting down Europe? Yeah, I mean, like transparently, we had like the worst fourth quarter we've ever had. It was it was a bloodbath. You know, we were just losing a significant amount of of cash and just burning through cash. And you know, like we just had to make hard decisions about the business. And when you're hemorrhaging money, you're not profitable we had to to scale back the team and then, you know, a leaner team means like, Hey, we're no longer going to have people proofing your, your work anymore. Like you're going to have to be responsible for your own work. And you know, like you're, you're no longer going to have someone who's kind of like being the, the, the quarterback of the marketing team. You have to kind of interact directly with your audience or your, your coworkers. So by scaling back the team, you were almost by necessity forced to, 
cut a lot of that red tape and, and focus on getting stuff done. Yeah, super important. All right. So at the end of the interview, we like to do a lightning round, which is where I ask you a question and you have under a minute to quickly answer whatever comes to mind. Are you ready, Eric? I am electrified. <laughs> Woohoo! All right. What's up next on new product launches coming to Beard Brand, if any? Yeah. So uh, our big thing is killing scent confusion or ending scent confusion. So we want to provide head to toe uh, fragrance matching products. So Ooh. we don't have anything in your midsection. So that's a little hint of a product that will be coming. Oh, fun. Okay. I'll have to stay tuned for that. What's up next content or video wise that you're excited about producing or creating next? Um, we want to systematize our barbershop and like fly in five different barbers and record over the course of a week, which would be a new way for us to perform. And um, I can't wait to do that. But this whole uh, quarantine's got to end first. Yes. Yeah. That sounds really fun. What's up next on your reading list? Oh, I hate reading. <laughs> okay. Podcast, audible, anything? <laughs> I hate, I hate reading, but I'll tell you, I, I just finished uh, the, the book called um, Rocket Fuel, which talks about integrators and visionaries. And it was like the, the one book that I've read over the past year. So I'm just going to cool. piggyback off of that one. All right. I like it. What's up next on your Netflix queue? Oh, again, man, I, I just had a baby like a uh, five weeks ago. So. Oh, congrats. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> oh, no way. That's awesome. Yeah. I had twins eight weeks ago. Yeah, oh, oh, poor you. <laughs> poor oh, us. Yeah. It's got to be crazy, right? <laughs> right in the quarantine. Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah. But uh, so no Netflix for us then. huh? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I watch Tiger, uh, Tiger Kings when in my off time when they're sleeping. <laughs> yeah, but but my my answer is uh, a lot of uh, primitive survival type of videos on YouTube. That's my go-to content that I consume. That's great. All right. And a little harder one. What's up next for e-commerce pros? You know, I think there's going to be um, a move away from Amazon from both a consumer perspective and a seller perspective. I think Amazon has really been kind of twisting the, um, the screw into a lot of people. And um, there's going to be a little bit of blowback from that. Yeah, completely agree. Especially with everything going on right now where Amazon's picking what products are essential. And I think they just said that they were going to be optimizing towards margins. So instead of showing people maybe what they want to find, they're going to be showing people uh, products that have higher margins. So I can see that also happening. And they're also neutering a lot of people in the affiliate space where they just literally cut their commissions in half. So, oh, yeah, that's not good. Okay. Well, that sounds like a good prediction then. Yeah, yeah. Less people will be pointing links to Amazon, I think. <laughs> All right. Any final words of advice or wisdom, Eric, that you want to share before we hop off? Yeah. I mean, the big thing I always like to tell people is like in life, you always have doubts and questions about what you need to do. The reality is you need to just go out there, execute and do it. So action a lot of times is better than no action. So just go out there. You know what you need to do. Go and get it done. Yes, do it. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Eric. It was a blast. And yes, see you soon. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.